take your Bible, please, and open to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel 7, it is uh, good to be back with you this weekend in God's Word as we uh, carry on in our series today, Looking to Jesus. Uh, the last time that we were in our series, we met David for the very first time. Uh, this was before David becomes the king. This is before David in all of his military victories. This is before David's reputation grows as a mighty warrior and leader of God's people. In fact, when we met David a couple of weeks ago, he was in a field in the middle of nowhere, uh, tending a flock of sheep, when a guy named Samuel came to his father Jesse's house and anointed David to be a future king over Israel. At some point after that, uh, David takes down Goliath and David is instantly hailed to be a national hero among all of Israel. In fact, when David comes home, the streets are lined with people who are singing David's praises and uh, comparing Saul's victories to David's even greater victories. And as a result of that, King Saul becomes madly jealous of David. And the rest of the book of 1 Samuel tells the story of David's rise in popularity and King Saul's repeated attempts to try and kill him. And in something of a twist, at the end of the book of 1 Samuel, King Saul dies a humiliating death in battle, and David mourns the death of Saul, who up to that particular point had made David's life miserable. And so now, as we enter into the book of 2 Samuel, through a series of rebellions and betrayals, David becomes the king over Judah, and then eventually he becomes the king over all of Israel. Which brings us now to 2 Samuel chapter 7. So let's read through this passage together. 2 Samuel 7, starting at verse 1, and we'll make our way down through to verse 17. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house." When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. 
And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now, 2 Samuel chapter 7 is one of the most important passages in this particular section of the Old Testament when it comes to 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. This actually is one of the most important passages, really, in all of the Old Testament. I think we could even make a case that this is one of the most important passages, really, in the entire Bible. Because it's here in this passage that God makes a promise to David that will not only have immediate implications for David but it also has eternal implications for all of us. In some ways, 2 Samuel chapter 7 is like the mountaintop of the Old Testament scriptures because it's here that God promises a king whose kingdom will reign forever. David would come and go. Many kings after David would come and go. But God says here that he is promising a king who when he comes, his kingdom will last forever. So we need to see right off the top this morning as we come into this passage that this is a really important passage in God's word, not only because of what God promises to David, but also because of what God promises to us through David. Through all of this, we find here that God is teaching us a lesson about the nature of grace. The nature of grace, because we come to this passage and we see that David's intent here, right from the very beginning, is very clear. He wants to build a house for God. He wants to do something great. He wants to do something outstanding for God. But we also find as we make our way through this passage that God comes back to David and he says, no. And it's not just that God says no. He also says not yet. And maybe even more stinging than that, he looks at David who wants to do this great thing for God and he says to David, not you. So in this conversation, God looks to David, who wants to do this great thing for God, and God says to him, no, not yet, and not you. What do you do when you have set your heart on doing something great for God, doing something spectacular for the Lord in your life, taking a big step of faith to follow him in obedience? You're stepping out in that step of faith. What do you do when you do that, and over the course of time, God comes back to you and makes it clear to you that he is saying, no, not yet, Maybe even not you. I told you before how uh, Stacy and I have had the blessing of adopting all three of our children. And even when uh, we got married, we had always set our heart on adoption at some point. We just had no idea that it would come about in the way that it did and as quickly as it did. Uh, We were not married that long when it was made clear to us that uh, we would not be able to have biological children of our own. And I remember that day when we were told that. I remember that very long and very quiet car ride home with Stacy. And in the days that followed after that, the tears that would come and the confusion and the questions and the wondering and why is all of this happening and trying to process all of these things. And, and it was like we were going through that season in our life and just asking God, why is this happening? Because you've given us this desire to have children, and your word tells us that having children is a good and noble thing. And so if you've given us this desire, then why are you withholding this desire from us? And and God, we believe that you're powerful and that you're all wise and you're all knowing, and we believe that you can take this circumstance that we're going through right now, and we don't understand it, but we believe you're powerful enough that you can completely turn this circumstance around if that's what you desire. And so why aren't you doing that? Why are we going through this? It doesn't make any sense to us. And 
just trying to process all these questions and all these emotions within us. And then a short time later, we started the process of adopting a little girl from China. And we had no idea where she would be. We had no idea who she was. She wasn't even born yet when we began the process. And, and then one day, in the summer of 2005, there we stood in a hotel conference room in the Nanchang province of China, and we held our 10-month-old baby girl for the first time. A few years later, sensing that uh, the Lord was not really done with us in this area yet, we went through this whole process again, this time here in Canada, and, and we got to the very end of the process, and after a couple of false starts with our uh, caseworker, she called us one day, and she asked us if we would be open to adopting biological brothers, and we're like, hey, two for the price of one, let's do that, and, and like, like we know a deal when we see it, right? So, so we, we go through that process, and then one day we w walk into this social services building, and right in the middle, there's the, like this, this room that's all glass walls, and, and we just walked up to the glass walls, and we look inside, and they're like right in the middle of the room are these two little boys, like two and three years old, sitting on the floor, and they're playing with their trucks and their trains, and Stacy and I walk up to the glass. We see them in the room, and we're like, this is it. Like, this is our family. And we walk away from that, and we're just like astounded. Our minds are blown by the grace of God. Today, we look at all three of our kids, and we cannot even begin to imagine what our family would be like without them. Like, we can't even begin to think of what our family would be if they were not a part of it. But all of those years before, when, when we didn't know, all of those years before, when we got the devastating news and we had all the questions and the tears were flowing and, and we were going through all of that, we had no idea that eventually there would come a point where God would just pour out his grace upon us in a way that at that moment we never could have anticipated. Now, I'm certainly not saying that when you set your heart to do something for God and God comes back to you and he says, no, not yet, or not you, I'm certainly not saying that your experience is going to turn out like ours, and I'm certainly not saying that all of our experiences have turned out like that, but one of the lessons that we learned going through that and one of the lessons that we've learned in a bunch of different ways since then is that oftentimes, and maybe really even all the time, God says no, not yet, or not you as a way of showing us the generosity of his grace within our life in a way that we never could have anticipated. Part of what makes it so astounding is that we have no idea how God's eventually going to do that, how he's going to pour out his grace upon our lives. And that's part of what I want us to see here in this passage in 2 Samuel 7 this morning. God comes to David and says, no, not yet, not you. But it's because at this point, God is about to show David his grace in an astoundingly generous way by doing something for David that David would have no ability whatsoever to anticipate. So let's dive into this passage, and we're just going to make our way through 2 Samuel 7 again, and we're going to draw three conclusions at the end about the nature of God's grace within our life. Okay, so let's dive in. Let's look again at verse 1. Chapter 7, verse 1. So here's Nathan and David. They're sitting out on the porch. David is, is the established king over Israel now. He has been for a little while. And they're sitting out on the porch one day after dinner, and, and they're enjoying this time of peace around them. Verse 1 says that God has given them rest from all of their enemies, and they have a little bit of time now to reflect on where they have been and where they are right now. And David looks around him, and he realizes that he's living in this big and beautiful palace that is built for a king. 
Some of the palace was made and decorated with cedar, which was not cheap. And and so as the king of Israel, David is living this life of luxury. But verse 2 tells us that he also realizes that the Ark of the Covenant of God lives within a tent. Now, just a little bit of context here. Uh, The Ark of the Covenant of God was a portable shrine for God's people. So it was a box that they would carry with them, and this box was overlaid in gold, and there were angels on the cover of the box that, uh, on each end that faced in towards the middle, and inside the Ark of the Covenant was the law of God. And this box would be carried around with the people of God wherever they went as a visible sign of the presence of God among his people. And so they would take this Ark with them wherever they traveled, and they would keep it in a tent, which by this point was centuries old. And so David now is sitting there with Nathan one day, and he's looking around to himself, and he's thinking to himself, man, I live in this huge place of luxury and extravagance, but God's presence lives in this old, worn-out tent that just keeps getting moved around every time we move around. Just to put this in a little bit of perspective, we are a four-year-old portable church that has moved locations once. And we have this fantastic team of people who set up everything that you see in here and down our Harvest Kids wing, and they set it up every weekend, and then they take it down every weekend, and then they take it out to our little portable tent in that container beside the building over there, and back and forth every weekend, and they do a fantastic job, and sometimes things get banged up a little bit, which is all part of the package. But what David is describing here at the start of chapter 7, this is like the original Old Testament portable church, okay? Because Day after day, week after week, year after year, decade after decade, now by this point, century after century, they're picking up this ark and they're moving it with them wherever they go because this ark represents the presence of God among his people. So verse 3, Nathan can already see where David's going with this and he says to him, David, that's a great idea. You need to do this and when you do this, God will be with you. But later that same night, the Lord comes to Nathan and God has a message for David God reminds David that God has been in control from the very beginning. That God has been with his people from the very beginning. And that as his people have moved around in all the places that they have gone, every place where they have went, God has gone with them and he has never once demanded from his people a cedar house in which to live. But look closely at what God is saying here in these first few verses because it can be really easy for us to miss this altogether. Verse 6, God says that he brought his people up out of Egypt. So he's been moving about with his people. Think about that. All through the time of oppression, all through the time of slavery, God never left his people. God constantly heard the cries of his people for deliverance. God never left his people. He's always with them, and he brings them up out of Egypt. Verse 7, God is still moving about with his people all through the period of the judges. Remember that? Everyone was living their own way and doing their own thing, and yet God was still moving about with his people, and God was always standing ready to deliver his people when they cried out to him in repentance. Then verse 8, God is still moving about, and he finds this skinny, scrawny little kid leading sheep through a pasture, and and God makes that kid prince over all of Israel. Verse 9, God is still moving about with his people, and God now has knocked down every single one of their enemies so that Israel, by this point, is experiencing this unparalleled time of peace within their nation. Like, do you see what's happening here? God loves to be with his people. 
Like just see the heart. Be encouraged by the heart of God here. God loves to be with his people from the time that they were in slavery and oppression to the time of the judges when the people were unfaithful to God to the time when they experienced victories and joy and celebration. God was always with his people. The heart of God is to be with his people because he loves his people so much. Be encouraged by the heart of God. Somehow, in ways that we don't understand, God works in us and he works through us and he takes us from the most lowly places and lifts us up to the most lofty of purposes. And that's the way that God has worked among his people. In fact, that's what God says next. Take a look at verse 9. Chapter 7, verse 9. God says, And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now look at this because this is mind-blowing. Like, don't miss what's happening here. All of this begins way back at the start of the chapter with David looking to God and saying, God, I want to build you a house. And now God is looking back at David and saying, David, you're not going to build me a house. Instead, I'm going to build you into a house. So it's a play on the word house here. David has in mind this big physical structure that he wants to build for God. And God comes back to him and says, no, I'm going to build you into a house. I'm going to build you into a dynasty. From that day forward, David would have a name that was among the greatest names of all the people who ever lived. And we read this, and suddenly now, everything has changed. Everything is flipping here. David starts by wanting to build for God a permanent dwelling. But God says that he wants to build for David a permanent dynasty. Do you see the thread of God's grace being pulled through this story? David says, God, I want to do this for you. And God comes back to David and says, David, thanks. That's a good thing. It's a noble thing. But it's not the thing that I want you to do. In fact, I am going to do something for you that is far greater than anything that you will ever be able to do for me. And don't forget, loved ones, don't forget that that whole process begins by God coming to David and saying, no, not yet, not you. God's fingerprints are all over this. God is not only making a promise to David here, but understand that he's also affirming the promise that he made to Abraham hundreds of years before. Take a look again at verse 9. God says, I will make for you a great name. So part of what that means is that there will be many people, many descendants who will come from David. Verse 10, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them. So there's land, there's a place where they are going to live and possess. The second part of verse 11, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And so there's blessing that's involved in this as well. So see this, all the way back in Genesis 12 and 15, which we looked at way back in our series a long time ago, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And in that covenant with Abraham, God promises Abraham three things. He promises him people, land, and blessing. Now, fast forward all these hundreds of years later to David, and God is promising to carry on that commitment that he made to Abraham and carry it on through David because now God is promising to give to David three things, 
people, land, and blessing. Like this is the grace of God. Like we need to understand in this moment that just because God comes to you and to me and he says to us, no, not yet, or not you, that does not mean that God has forgotten you. That does not mean that God has stopped working within your life or that he has nothing left to do for you. That's not what this means at all because it could very well mean that God is getting ready to lead you through a season in your life where he is about to pour out his grace upon you in a way that right now you could never anticipate. You just don't know it's coming. So just because God says no or not yet or not you doesn't mean that God's done. He's not done with you yet. So look again at verse 12 and and see how this part of the story is coming together. Verse 12, God says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now this is so important. This is what is known in the Bible as the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant covenant. It's the covenant, the promise that God makes to David. So we read through this passage, and you'll notice here that the word covenant is never used in this passage, but there are other places in the Bible that affirm this as a true covenant, as an enduring promise that God makes to David and to his people. For example, 2 Samuel 23, Psalm 89 speak of this as God's covenant 1 Kings chapter 3 and chapter 8, Solomon is looking back and he's remembering God's covenant promise to David. Not only that, but we look at this passage and and this passage, um, as all the passages that we've looked at through the course of our series, are meant to point us to Jesus. We're looking ahead to Jesus. We're looking ahead to God's promised Messiah, but but we read through this passage and we come to verses 14 and 15 and, and it doesn't really seem to line up. Verse 14 God says, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. And we read that and we think to ourselves, okay, if, if this is pointing us ahead to Jesus, like I thought Jesus was without sin. And yes, absolutely, Jesus is without sin. That's absolutely true. He lived in perfect obedience to his heavenly father. Jesus is without sin. But as is often the case when we come to Old Testament prophecies, this prophecy is fulfilled on more than one level. So think of it like this. There's a near fulfillment of this prophecy, and then there's also a far fulfillment of this prophecy. Let's try and picture it like this. If you're standing way back a little bit, and you're looking out at a mountainscape, and and you see two mountaintops, two mountain peaks, and, and from your distance all the way back from so far away, those two mountaintops look very, very similar. But it's not until you get up close to them that you begin to realize not only how big they are, but also how different they are. If you're standing way back in that far view, you can't really see the difference, but when you go up close and you see them up close for yourself, you realize how different they actually are. So think of it like this. The near fulfillment of this prophecy in 2 Samuel 7 comes about in David's son, Solomon. We know that. Solomon is David's offspring who will reign over his kingdom. 
Solomon would build a house for the name of God and for the presence of God, and the temple that Solomon built would be so much more greater than any cedar house that David had in mind. And for all the great things, though, that Solomon did for God and the ways that he was used by God, he was still a broken and sinful man who did some really dumb things. And he would be disciplined by God for his sin, and and God would never take away his love from Solomon like he did from Saul earlier. That's the near fulfillment of this prophecy. But think about it also at the same time like this. There's a far fulfillment of this prophecy. And the far fulfillment of this prophecy comes about not in the son of David, who is Solomon. The far fulfillment of this prophecy comes about in the son of God, who is Jesus. Jesus is the king whose kingdom will reign forever. And not only is Jesus the king who resides in the temple, but Jesus is the temple himself. Now, at this point, I, I want to um, pull on this thread a little bit of, of Jesus being the fulfillment of this promise that God makes in 2 Samuel 7. And, and we've got some verses that we're going to put up on the screen here. And you can write these down, write these references down, and just follow along with me as I read through these passages. Because I want you to see, right from this point in 2 Samuel 7, just look up here for a minute, just before you start writing these down, okay? I want you to see from the the moment that God makes this promise in 2 Samuel 7, that all the way through the rest of the Bible, right to the very final words of the Bible in Revelation 22, that God is coming through on this promise that he makes to David and through David, and that this promise is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Okay, so follow along with me as we go. Ezekiel 37, verses 24 to 27. says, My servant David shall be king over them, And they shall have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. So we're reading this passage in Ezekiel and there's a lot of similar language that God uses in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He goes on, Ezekiel 37, verse 26. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So God is guaranteeing that this promise that he makes here uh, to David in 2 Samuel 7 will carry on not only in Ezekiel's day, but then for generations to come after him. And then we flip to another Old Testament prophet, Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. But that's not all. We see it again in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, a passage that we often come back to around Christmas time. It says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David 
and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Well, yes, it will, because we finally get to the New Testament and we read this in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 31 to 33. The angel of the Lord is speaking to Mary and says to her, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and listen to this, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Peter preaches this on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verses 29 to 32. Peter stands up in front of this whole crowd and he says to them, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and that his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And so Peter is standing up on the day of Pentecost. He's going all the way back to 2 Samuel 7, to this promise that God makes to David as a way of validating the resurrection of Jesus, saying that if Jesus is the one that God has promised to be on the throne of David forever, then God is the one who has to raise Jesus from the dead. That's not all. Then we get all the way to the end of the Bible when Jesus promises to return and set up his eternal kingdom. Revelation 22, verse 16 says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Like This is the grace of God. Like We gotta see this. From the very day that God makes this covenant promise to David all the way back in 2 Samuel 7. That thread stretches all the way through to the end of time and is fulfilled perfectly in Jesus Christ. Just think about this. For all the times that all of God's people throughout all generations have been unfaithful to God, God remains faithful to his people. He gives us the Savior that was promised all the way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But that's not all. One day, shortly before dying on the cross, Jesus would stand in Jerusalem and he would declare that he would tear down the temple and then rebuild it in three days. You remember that? And all the people standing around who heard him say that, they thought he was crazy because how can anybody tear down this physical structure of a building and then just rebuild it again in three days? But what they didn't understand was that Jesus was not talking about the building of the temple. He was talking about the temple of his body. Jesus is how God's name and God's presence are made known to us. He was made flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. He lived among us. Jesus would be hung on a cross and he would take all of God's discipline against our sin upon himself with his stripes. Even as verse 14 in 2 Samuel 7 says, with his stripes, the stripes of men, because of his stripes we are healed. Because of his steadfast love for us, not only did Jesus stay on the cross, but three days later, he would rise again from the dead. But it doesn't end there. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, he said, when you believe in me, I am going to give you my Holy Spirit to live inside of you. And when my Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, you become my temple. 
You become the temple in which I live, and I'm going to live in you so that my kingdom will rule and reign within your life from this day forward. I mean, just stop for a second and consider the amazing grace of this God. Like, this is God's grace to us. All the way back in 2 Samuel 7 with a conversation between David and God that starts with God looking to David and saying, no, not yet, not you has now turned into an eternal promise of salvation for all of God's people and for every single one of us sitting in this room right now. Which leads us then to three conclusions. Three conclusions that we can draw now that flow from a right understanding of God's grace within our lives. Here's the first conclusion. Grace begins with what God has done for me, not with what I can do for God. Grace begins with what God has done for me, not with what I can do for God. This whole passage here in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is what God does for his people. This is about God and what he does for his people. From verses 5 through 17 alone, God refers to himself at least 33 times. 33 times, just from verses 5 to 17, to say either what he has done for his people or what he will still do for his people. For example, verse 6, God says, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt. Verse 7, in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word of any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel? Verse 8, speaking to David specifically, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. Verse 9, and I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name. Verse 10, I will appoint for them. I will plant them. And so much more through this passage. I mean, is there really any question? Is there really any doubt about who this passage is about? It's about God. It's almost like part of what God is saying to David here and part of what God now is saying to us through his word here is like, David, church, remember who I am. Because when you remember who God is, we do a much better job of remembering who we are. Remember who God is. Remember what God has done. It's like God is saying, I'm the one who has taken care of my people from the very beginning. And I'm the one who continues to provide for my people even to this very day. I'm the one who has done all of this. I'm the one who has brought you from where you were and placed you where you are and will take you to where you need to be. I am the one, David, who has pulled you out of this pasture when everybody else had forgotten about you. And I'm the one who has put you on this throne. In other words, David, I don't need your help. Like, remember who God is. Because when we remember who God is, we do a much better job of remembering who we are. We remember that God is in control. From beginning to end and at every point in between, this is all about how God works to save his people. This can be so hard for us. It's so hard for us because at every single turn, our flesh, our sinful flesh, wants to rise up against that and say, well, there's got to be something that I can do. Right? Anybody else struggle with that? Right? Like, there's got to be something else that I can do. There's got to be some way that I can secure my salvation. There's got to be some way that I can find God's favor. And so we start making these things up, right? We start setting these standards that we define for ourselves, and we say things like, well, I must be okay with God because I'm at church every weekend. Eh, 
Wrong answer, right? And so we go on and we say, well, I must be okay with God because I'm not going to have sex before marriage. Eh, wrong answer. And we think to ourselves, well, if it's not that, then I must be okay with God because I read a Bible and I have all these verses memorized and I drop money in the offering bag and, and I serve in this ministry in the church and I help all these kinds of people and it's like, eh, eh, and eh, wrong answers, right? All the way across the board. Think about this for a minute. Jesus didn't need our help dying on the cross. He didn't. He didn't ask us to help him live a perfect life of obedience to his Father. Nor did he ask us to help him die a perfect substitutionary death in our place. Just to make sure that he had all of his bases covered. He never asked that of us. Remember who God is. Because when you remember who God is, you do a much better job. I do a much better job of remembering who I am. And that everything that I have and everything that I am and everything that you are and everything that you have and everything that you and I ever will be is only because of the grace of God upon our lives. Grace begins with what God has done for me, not with what I can do for God, which leads us then to conclusion number two. My desire to do great things for God should flow from God's great grace to me. My desire to do great things for God should flow from God's great grace to me. And see, this is where it all turns because this is where our part comes in. But understand this from, from the very beginning. We do not do great things for God to be justified. We do great things for God because we have been justified. Now, you and I are not going to build a cedar house for God like David wanted to. And you and I are not going to build this massive, luxurious, spectacular temple for God like Solomon did. But I don't know about you, but I want my life to count for something. Anybody else with me on that? Like, I want my life to count for something. I want this relatively short period of time that I have here on this earth to make an eternal difference for an eternal king who reigns over an eternal kingdom. There's a saying that goes, not everything from heaven has your name on it, but something from heaven does. Not everything from heaven has your name on it, but something from heaven does. In other words, we are not called to do all of God's work just because it's God's work that has to be done. You, I, am not called to do all of God's work just because it's God's work that has to be done. But, listen to this, if you know God personally through faith in Jesus Christ... Like, if you truly know God, and this grace that we've been talking about this morning has truly captured your heart, it has become real within your life, and you realize that at one time in your life, because of your sin, you were separated from this holy God who created you in his image and for his glory, and because of your sin and my sin against him, a price had to be paid to satisfy the justice and the holiness of this amazing God, and that the only acceptable sacrifice for our sin was his son, that this humble servant would leave his throne in heaven to humble himself to the will of his father and then be humiliated by a cruel death on the cross that would pay for our sins to make us right with God. And then three days later, he would rise again from the dead to cancel the penalty of that sin that weighs on me and it weighs on you if we will only believe in him so that he can be king over my life and his kingdom can reign in me. And then he would give us his spirit to live within us to totally gain guarantee for us the salvation he died to provide and to bring about the sanctification that he rose again to secure 
only to promise that one day he will come again very soon to ultimately and eternally fulfill this promise that he makes to David in 2 Samuel 7 by giving us a king who will reign forevermore. Like, if you get that, if you get nothing else, but if you get that, if you truly understand that God offers that to you with no strings attached, and he offers that to you simply because he loves you so much, if you get that, then you need to understand that from this point forward, your life, your entire life, your entire existence, who you are, becomes a blank check before God. And you stand before God and you say, God, here's my life, a blank check before you. You fill it in. You tell me what it's going to cost. Listen, God is the one who builds the house. God has given us all different roles, but we all have a role to play. So you stand before God with your whole life as a blank check before him, and you say, God, you fill it in. Show me what this looks like. Missions? If that's what you want me to do, God, then that's what I'll do. Just show me where. Leverage my business for your kingdom? If that's what you want me to do, God, then that's what I'll do. Just show me how. Serving in youth ministry, if that's what you want, God, then that's what I'll do, and I'll do it with joy. Leaving an established career to enter into Christian ministry, if that's what you want, God, then that's what I'll do. Just show me how it's going to happen, because I don't see it right now. Maybe even, listen, maybe even staying exactly where you are, and doing exactly what you're doing, and continuing to do exactly what you have been doing for so, so long, staying there and staying faithful, if that's what you want me to do, God, then that's what I will do, and strengthen me to keep going in the grace that you give me. See, the point of this is that if the grace of God has truly captured our hearts, then sitting on the sidelines is no longer an option. Like, if the grace of God has truly captured your heart, then half-hearted worship is no longer an option. If God's grace has truly gripped who you are, then convenient consumer Christianity is no longer an option. And think about it. If we put ourselves in the context here of 2 Samuel 7, and it's like we're coming before God and saying, God, you're building the house, but please show me my part and help me to give my life to it which helps put this final conclusion then into perspective. Number three, because of God's eternal loyalty to me, I have a forever home with him. Notice verse 15 again. God is speaking of how part of the promise will be fulfilled in Solomon and that Solomon will fall short. and Therefore, we need to look past Solomon to a greater king. Look at verse 15. God says, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Those words, steadfast love, describe God's unbroken relational loyalty to his people. God's unbroken relational loyalty to his people. The steadfast love of God is the power by which God maintains his promise to his people. We need to see this. God loves his people. God loves you. He loves to be with you. He loves to provide for you. He loves to lead you. He loves to bless you. 
God loves to be with his people. His love will never leave. And that, loved ones, is why the Davidic covenant here in 2 Samuel 7 needs to matter so much for us. Because in this covenant, God is not only making a promise to David and then to Solomon, he's also making a promise to all of his people that will now last forever. He's making a promise that one day King Jesus will come and make a way for us to know the steadfast love of God that will never depart from us and that that now because Christ has come and because of his finished work on the cross and in the resurrection and because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, we as God's people are always loved. God is with us and God loves to be with us. And because God is with us and he loves to be with us and because there's coming a day when we will be with him forever, then we have the guarantee of rest. You see this? Like we rest in the presence of God. It was God's grace that gave David rest from his enemies. It's God's grace that will one day give us full and final rest from our greatest enemy in the presence of God forever because of all that Christ has done for us. This is the undeniable grace of this great and awesome God. So, two questions to bring all of this together. Number one, God is building his kingdom and his kingdom will last forever. Are you part of it? Are you part of the work, the kingdom work that God is doing? Have you bowed down in surrender to this king who will reign forever? Like you need to understand, this is the only thing, this is the most important thing that will give your life meaning and value and purpose. And you will not find that meaning or value or purpose in anything else until you bow your knee in submission to King Jesus. Question number two. If you are part of God's kingdom, have you given your life to him as a blank check? If you come before God and say, God, here's my life. Here I am, God, whatever, whenever, and wherever. King Jesus, you give the command, and I will give my life. And incidentally, loved ones, this too is the only place that we will find meaning and value and purpose within our lives so that when the no comes or when the not yet comes or even when the not you comes, your life is not wrapped up only in what you can do for God, but instead your life is firmly grounded in what God has already done for you in his grace because he loves you. All of life, every single part of our lives, truly wrapped up in the grace that God has shown us in our eternal King Jesus.